for April 15th, 2013. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 250. Pointing a Pentium 3 at a dinosaur. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, uh, only two hours drive from Coachella and, you know, all the assorted hippie making out in the dirt that's going on there. Uh, Also, Instagram. Yeah, all the hologram-related entertainment that's uh, (laughs) transpiring at Coachella. I'm Matthew Rather here on the podcast uh, with the panel. Panel! Your question tonight, you may not know this, but Justin Bieber recently visited the Anne Frank house uh, in the Netherlands. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. No, no, no. He kept his shirt on. Okay. Uh, But he did did, uh, express regret uh, at Anne Frank's death. Shocking. Uh, position for him to take, I think, really going out there on a limb, Uh, that it is a shame that Anne Frank died. But what might be a little more shocking is the reason he gave. Um, It would have, uh, if she would have lived, he said, she would have been a believer. (laughs) So in honor, in honor of this great stride forward in cultural sensitivity, this great stride forward in, in the image of Americans abroad, you know, globally, in honor of this, our cultural ambassador, uh, Justin Bieber, um, who is a figure from history whom you would like to resurrect so that they could hear the music of Justin Bieber? First in the alphabet, drink, it's Peter Fenzel. Hey, how's it going, Matt? I'm all right, thank you. I, I heard that Matt, that he actually wrote that in the guest book at the Anne Frank House. Is what I heard. That he actually like that was what he left. That, he, that if she were alive, he hoped that she would be. Uh, if she were alive, he hoped she would be a believer. Uh, oh God, they, is, they didn't ask me to sign the guest book when I was at the Anne Frank House. No, definitely not. So I, I think I'm going to go with uh, Roman Senator Cato the Elder. <laughs> uh, who uh, is from the 2nd century to 3rd century BC and is very famous for his campaign for the perhaps unnecessary total extermination and expungation <laughs> of the city of Carthage by ending all of his great oratories <laughs> with the famous phrase Carthago Delenda Est, uh, meaning Carthage must be destroyed. And he would do this for even unrelated <laughs> speeches like, hey, this is a great aqueduct and Carthage must be destroyed. <laughs> yeah, right. That was fun. Like, yeah, the cloaca of the Roman sewer system is you know is breaking down carthago delenda est exactly and i would just love to hear him give one of his big oratory and incentive it with baby 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 oh baby 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 no carthago delenda boyfriend carthago delenda est <laughs> uh, what are the other ones? Christmas song by Justin Bieber. <laughs> Carthago Delendez. <laughs> this Selena Gomez movie is something I will see in the theater. Carthago Delendez. <laughs> uh, Mark Lee, you are actually the you're the the 
I, I want to say perpetrator of the baby, the baby project on overthinking it. That's um, me. Explain what the baby project is for people. Who- <laughs> the baby, baby project is, is still ongoing. It's on hiatus. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> that is salad days back in, in, uh, in 2011. Um, and since it's gone a bit of remission, but it'll be back someday. I promise the baby project was my attempt at covering the Justin Bieber song baby in as many different genres as possible. Um, prior to it, uh, you know, going on hiatus, uh, I did it in punk rock, country, and indie rock versions. Um, I encourage you to go check them out on overthinkingit.com. And I, if you have them, not not to plug my own contribution, but I recorded a short demo, just the chorus uh, of it in a like a big band style um, that I circulated privately among the Overthinking It writers. And so, if if sir, if you ever. Uh, resurrect the the baby project. I might submit that to you to see if it's worthy of inclusion in the the pantheon of musical styles that you are uh, using. Now, why why baby? I mean, is it because it's a song with absolutely no distinguishing characteristics? Uh, I mean, th- those are your words. Matt. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, like, I think it's because Anne Frank would have wanted it that way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, you know. Um, we talked about this at the time, and I, I didn't really come up with a great reason for choosing that song. Other than that, it was just uh, it, it was good enough of a song, and also it was just so much of the moment and part of the zeitgeist at the time, I think, that I wanted to see it sort of like just take the wrong ingredients of it and transpose it in different settings and see what would happen. And amazing things happen. Okay, so here's the question, right? Uh, what's the historical figure? I'm speaking of resurrection, right? Um, what historical figure would like to resurrect so he or she could experience, experience the music? Of Justin Bieber, and I'm definitely going to have to go with Mao Zedong, uh, the, the former <laughs> dictator, uh, the, the founder of the People's Republic of China and former dictator of China. Uh, the reason why is because, as you know, I will remember Mao Zedong was the um, you know, perpetrator of, of uh, crimes even greater than the, Bieber pro- the baby project. Um, he did things like the Cultural Revolution greatly before, all these sorts of like, crazy experiments with communism and socialism and uh, creating new social orders and uh, you know, like taking people out of whatever job they were doing and like putting them in something else completely, just like just completely upending the social order. Right. And I would like to see how Mao Zedong would react to the sight of Justin Bieber, right. This, uh, what at the time, you know, 14, 15 year old boy, um, be becoming the biggest pop star in the world and you know, singing and dancing in these glitzy music videos. And I, I would just have like, wanted to see his reaction and see, uh, like, like what he would have thought of like what social order could have possibly created this, this creation right like i am sending nuclear physicists to the farm to work and 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 farm rice and to uh you know uh create very low level agriculture like make steel in their in their backyards and things like that and yet this society here has somehow found it worthy to uh let this child sing and dance in this way and obtain uh in millions of youtube videos how did this happen and 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 once he saw that then mao zedong would be a believer so it's like the Grinch, like his heart will grow six sizes, that thing? Yeah. <laughs> he would embrace the wonders of capitalism. <laughs> like, oh, that's I don't know. Do. I, I mean, that's not a guaranteed outcome. He might say, let 999 flowers bloom. That was even that was even a little much for all of us. I think. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't read our little red books enough recently, unfortunately. Uh, I think it's my turn. Um, I I would like uh, the um, 
the Italian composer, late Renaissance composer, Carlo Gesualdo to hear uh, Justin Bieber's music. I don't think he would be a believer, but I, I would like, it would be a fitting punishment. Carlo Gesualdo uh, has one of the greatest, um, you know, one-line Wikipedia summations on his Wikipedia page, uh, which I will read to you now. Carlo Gesualdo, also known as Gesualdo de Venosa, and it gives his, his date of birth and death, uh, Prince of Venosa and uh, Count of Conza was an Italian nobleman, lutinist, composer, and murderer. <laughs> so Gesualdo, the, the f- funny thing about Gesualdo, the, t- the Cliff's Notes on Gesualdo, if you're ever at a cocktail party with a bunch of, uh, you know, I don't know, music composition graduate students or something like this, uh, is that, uh, one, he, he uh, killed uh, his wife's lover when he found them in bed together. And two, he... Um, uh, used chromatic, he used like advanced chromaticism in his madrigals, uh, and in his sacred music that, uh, uh, had never, I mean, there wasn't really, uh, much precedent for it. And music did not get that adventurous again, you know, for a long, long time. So you're listening to him and you feel like, Hey, this could be Albon Berg, or this could be, you know, uh, I don't know, something. It was, equivalent, it was the equivalent of Michael J. Fox playing Johnny B. Good, the dance in the fifties. Exactly. <laughs> Right, yeah, and I'm not saying that Carlo Gesualdo was sent from the future back to the court of uh, of Venosa in order to kill a guy and um, revolutionize music, but uh, if if he heard um, if he heard uh, the the insipid um, gray on beige, you know, plain vanilla uh, musical language of Justin Bieber. I think that that he would be appropriately punished for that guy he killed, because you know you shouldn't do that, even when your wife is <laughs> stupping some guy. Uh, it's not that's not a good reason to um, murder anybody. The more you know. So we have a special guest today. Uh, Carrie Durzik is a yay. Uh, yay, is a Boston area uh, uh, comedian and um, raconteur all sorts. And uh, also an expert, one of the world's leading experts on a subject that we're going to talk about later in the podcast. Carrie, welcome to the Overthinking It podcast. Hello. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. So um, who uh, from history would you like to resurrect just so that they can have the sublime experience of hearing the music of Justin Bieber? Well, I've been thinking about it as you've been talking, and I'm, I'm very happy with my choice because I think he should actively make this happen, you know, with his powers, um, resurrecting someone and go with somebody who already knows a thing or two about devotion and just go with Joan of Arc, you know, bring her back. <laughs> And and maybe have a, a let me paint a scene for you. Have, like uh, this whole he could teleport her just in the moment when she's burning at the stake onto stage and coax him, coax her over from being a believer into a believer. And the moment that she changes over, he would just extinguish the flames with just like a rain of glitter. It would be a really great showpiece. Um, I think that it makes the most sense. <laughs> You're certainly the kindest to your historical figure. Everyone else seems to want to torture there. <laughs> oh, no, no. No, see, now, the thing is, like, not to be sacrilege, but if she believed in Bieber and not in her other beliefs, it would have ended much nicer for her, I think. <laughs> she not for the Dauphin, though. The Dauphin. <laughs> she might have gone to war against... Happened. 
I mean, she could have gone to war against, I don't know, like uh, Selena Gomez or something like that mm. for Certainly. breaking poor Justin's heart. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I uh, I want to just uh, put um, the reminder in your ear that uh, this uh, this week on Overthinking It, we're going to have a few more installments from our Eurovision video contest. Um, the the videos have been a blast to do, and and Mark has been doing them, and Pete has been doing them, and I've been doing them. Um, except for one thing, you can't correct mistakes like. <laughs> There's there's this one time in in one of my videos where I said uh, Norway instead of Finland, and a bunch of Finns took me to task quite rightly in the comments section. Uh, I offended a bunch the entire Finnish contingent of overthinking its listeners, which and- is most of our non Indo European speaking fans, <laughs> right? Like, we don't have a lot of Magyars people. So. <laughs> Um, so I, uh, yeah. So like, again, my profound apologies to, to the uh, proud nation of Finland and it's great people. Um, I can tell the difference between you and Norway. I guess it would have been better, uh, better, uh, worse. Uh, it would have been a, a bigger mistake. I mean, uh, to have said Sweden, right. But, um, so, uh, right. And, and, uh, we've all, we've all had that cause there've been a, l- a few little snafus in, in all of our videos. I don't know. Do you have a, uh, do you have a favorite part guys or, uh, or, uh, sort of coming to, uh, coming to Bieber experience, uh, that you've had in, in doing your videos, uh, over the last couple of weeks? Oh gosh! You mean like I, I don't know? I, I really liked watching the Bulgaria song. That was really fun with the wall of drums and with the the bagpipe guy that was playing the music. I mean, that was interesting. I mean, I don't think it's ever. I haven't had a sort of Joan of Arc revelatory glitter experience with any of the Eurovision music to date. <laughs> I uh, on it. wait till you hear. Um... This isn't going to come out this week, but I'm working on Switzerland right now, and it's going to come out next week. And uh, uh, wow, wait till you hear the Switzerland song. In fact, you know what? You can go just watch the Switzerland song uh, and prepare for the awesome things that I'm I'm going to say about it. I uh, I'm actually hauling my keyboard out of mothballs in order to to accompany my video with musical live musical demonstrations um, of modulating to the relative major. Uh, in that. So that's something you can look forward to. The other video thing and other video news on Overthinking It, uh, we started recapping uh, Mad Men and we started recapping Game of Thrones uh, last week on Overthinking It, and we are going to continue doing that in the coming weeks. So you can, um, though though accidentally they were um, published on my own personal YouTube account uh, last week because I started the Google Hangout from the wrong account. My my goodness, these things are, are involved. Um, so thank you to the several dozen people who have subscribed to my YouTube channel <laughs> since, <laughs> since then. But I, I, I don't think these are the droids that you are looking for. Uh, you want to subscribe to the Overthinking It YouTube channel by searching for Overthinking It on YouTube or following any of the numerous links that we are littering our posts with. Anyway, uh, on to other... That was that was. It seems like your ambitions to establish a really complex technological system had small things go wrong that ended up spiraling out of control into larger and larger problems. It's almost like if I took this drop of water and I put it on the back of your hand and uh-huh. you saw it get rolled off, and it's the butterfly effect, really. 
Do you know anything about chaos theory? Nonlinear <laughs> equations. <laughs> I actually I took a gut science class in college that was called uh, fractal geometry, where we watched the Simpsons episode that does a parody the parody of the uh, uh, Sound of Thunder, the Ray Bradbury story. You know the one I mean, where he steps on a, a butterfly and terrible consequences ensue. So, <laughs> so from that, uh, you know, from that like credit and a half of uh of required science credit i feel like i have a pretty strong i have a like mandelbrotian understanding of uh of chaos theory so yeah uh why why pete have you seen anything recently that deals with chaos theory or with uh fractal geometry or with unpredictable (laughs) systems <laughs> oh gosh! Uh, what Who if says we can't not- do segue on the overthinking? <laughs> what if I told you not only did I see something that addressed these very same complex <laughs> mathematical subjects, and not only did I see it with Carrie Drisick, who's wait, wait, on this wait, call wait, right wait, now? Wait, 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 wait! If you had seen something, if I had seen something that, that addressed these these complex mathematical subjects, Dianu. Dianu, indeed. But not only did I see this such thing, and not only was our special guest also present, and not only is she one of the world's foremost experts on this very subject, but it was in not one, not two, but three dimensions. Oh, wow. All three. Hold on to your butts, people. I should clarify, I'm much more of an an enthusiast <laughs> than an expert. Wow, way to deny the premise. Oh, yeah, well, welcome to Overthinking It, where that line between enthusiast yeah. and expert we'll is see blurred how this goes. every day. I, I tend to be an underthinker, just as a life choice, um, so we'll see. Well, for those of you who have no idea what, you're, what we're talking about, welcome to Jurassic Park. It's a park and it's old. It is practically Jurassic. I'm sure you guys have a lot of things to talk about the you know the experience of watching Jurassic Park in two or and or three dimensions. But can we just talk about the music while we're on while while we are singing the themes to it? Because I've always thought that the music was not exactly the most fitting of a movie about uh, dinosaurs run amok. I mean, the music is beautiful oh, so and, and so memorable. And yet, right, like not quite evoking of the, the, the velociraptors and the T-Rexes eating people and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, although the pieces specific to those scenes are more menacing. And I, I owned, <laughs> I owned the, uh, the score and uh, listened to it on my CD boombox uh, very oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. many okay, times yeah. as a 10-year-old child sure. and for several years afterwards. So uh, it's funny rewatching it, how much music there is compared to films now. I feel like you don't see quite so much music going on underneath. It's almost operatic in the way that it's mm. like a character. Yeah, there's that huge scene with the helicopter descending, right? Where they're yeah. just really leaning on that theme super hard. And and you're totally right, Mark, in that like the 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 big Jurassic Park themes that we all know, it's pretty clear in the story that they are like the Jurassic Park is really awesome, right? Like the idea of Jurassic <laughs> Park is awesome. Like the aspirations that made it possible are awesome. Uh, the fact that you are looking at dinosaurs, it's is itself an awesome thing. Right, like uh, one of the things that I said to, to Carrie and friends after we left the movie is that like Spielberg's big lesson in Jurassic Park is that um, 
Jurassic Park is a great idea. You should just do it with a movie instead of with actual pounds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that reminds me of a question I want to ask you guys. What kind of movie is Jurassic Park? Is it a monster movie in that, you know, it's about these horrible dinosaurs running amok? Or is it something else that I can't quite put my finger on? And, and the reason why I can't put my finger on it is uh, sort of, uh, you know, it, it comes from this, this you know, uh, difficulty I'm having here reconciling the soundtrack with the movie itself. I think it's more of an ad- adventure um, than a monster movie. Even when you see the dinosaurs, like the stuff with the raptors gets kind of intense and like creature featurey. But for the most part, we're, even when they're doing horrible things, you're still, I think, meant to be just in awe of them as animals. Um, so I wouldn't categorize it as a monster movie per se. Like you're saying, it's more of like a family adventure. Adventure, and it's definitely for kids. <laughs> Yeah, it's very much a family movie. It's almost like it's like a almost like a nuclear family epic, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like the the purpose of the movie is to justify the existence of the nuclear family. Like like one of the big arcs in the movie that is not as pronounced in the book, which we were talking about earlier, is that um the pre- that Grant and oh what's what's Laura Dern's character's name in the movie? Ellie Sadler. Ellie <laughs> Ellie Sadler. So Grant and Ellie Sadler are involved romantically, and Grant doesn't want children, and Ellie wants children. And throughout the course of the movie, by being exposed to Hammond's grandchildren and learning how to protect them as a mammal protects young uh, against these these evil bird reptiles or whatever, they're not evil, but, you know, what have you, morally agnostic, um, he then comes around to the idea of having kids. So it's actually similar to Terminator and Terminator 2 in that way, right? And, like, Terminator is a movie that's about pregnancy and motherhood. Right, it's about it's about Sarah Connor's anxieties about like the pressure society puts on her to have babies, and then Terminator Two is about being a mother and the sort of and protecting your child uh, and the sort of fear of what's going to happen to your child in the future. And Jurassic Park is also a sci-fi movie. It's masquerading as a sci-fi movie, but it's really a movie that's making a very specific sort of claim about the experience of being in a family. And it's like you should have families because it's natural because when life finds a way. Is- all of that is layered on in the film. Like, that's completely absent in the book, which I just reread in two days, <laughs> just seeing the, <laughs> the re release. Um, uh, Ellie and Grant aren't a couple at all. Um, there's He actually really likes kids right from the beginning. So, that whole theme was completely just layered on for the film. I mean, the film and the book are completely different. I mean, we see a lot of adaptations now where books are so popular and they need to please the book reading audience in the book but this more it just took some core themes and hey dinosaurs (laughs) and built a, a much like tighter simple story around it yeah, I did marvel at just just how much the, there is of the scary stuff. As in, like, there's a little bit of the scary stuff, but there isn't enough to push your tolerance for it, even if you have a very light tolerance for it. There isn't much in the way of dinosaurs for the whole first half of the movie, and the parts that actually get scary. There's like, I think there's two really big kind of like creature jump out at you and scare you moments in the movie. And one of them is the first time that they see the T-Rex when it sneaks up on them. Right. Um, and that's sort of a really, 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 really slow build. And the other one is that wonderful scene in the shed where Ellie is, what does she say, Carrie? She says, um, um, when she then she gets the power back on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Mr. Hammond, I think we're back in business. Because ah! then a raptor jumps out at her. Yeah. Spoiler so like, alert. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so there, there will be blanket spoilers for Jurassic Park, by the way. 
by the way, life finds a way, and it there does. are mankind was never meant to do. Uh, those are the big spoilers at Jurassic Park. Um, and also, uh, they spared no expense. Is the other no, one. no expense. <laughs> Except that they apparently didn't pay get Nedry enough, and they didn't get good insurance. They but, actually really spared a lot of expenses, which is made even more clear when you read the book. Like Hammond is in the movie; he's this benevolent grandfather figure um, who, you know, is eccentric and made some bad choices, but ultimately his heart's in the right place. In the book, he is just morally reprehensible and wants to make the most money possible. Like, in in one breath, he'll be talking about the wonder of it all and hoping he lives to see the children's faces as they see the animals. But then in the next breath, he's talking about how, well, I only do entertainment because it's not regulated by any governments and I can do whatever I want, basically. He's pretty clearly modeled after Andrew Carnegie, I believe, uh, because he's from Scotland. He's like this old, white-bearded man who's kind of short. He actually even looks like Andrew Carnegie, the famous, uh, gosh, is Carnegie Coal, Railroads, all of it. Um, steel. I think it's, is it steel for him? Yeah, it's steel for Carnegie. Steel. So he's the big, because Rockefeller is the big, the big railroad guy and Carnegie is the big steel guy. And so he even looks a lot like Andrew Carnegie in the movie. And yeah, he's from Scotland. He like moves to the United States, uh, and sort of starts small time businesses. And then he eventually decides that he's going to follow his dream and he's going to build himself up from his bootstraps and has this grand vision for what he wants to do. And he also has this benevolent side that he, that he wants to sort of like give things to, to the, to his children and to the future, and he wants like the poor to be able to see the the dinosaurs in the same way that Andrew Carnegie endowed like museums and concert halls and stuff like that. Um, so in the movie, he's a much more benevolent figure, but he is also still, you know, obviously somewhat villainous in that his hubris is what causes a lot of the. Uh, yeah, just a quick well. Actually, uh, John D. Rockefeller um, was in oil and not oil. Standard, um, standard and and, oil. and not steel. Also, he was into woolly mammoths and not uh, dinosaurs. <laughs> I get confused because of all the vertical integration that was allowed. One thing I found interesting in rereading the book, I mean, I, I, I don't know how I would feel about Jurassic Park if I saw it at any other time, but it just hit me at the perfect moment where I still had all of my willing suspension of disbelief intact um, and, and you know, loved the family aspect. As a 10-year-old, you would. It just It's very comforting in the middle of this adventure. But um, looking at it from an adult perspective, rereading the book, I kept just thinking about all of these Americans going to other places in the world and just completely destroying them for their own purposes. <laughs> and like, every single who- character, every single character in the book that you encounter who's important, like in the lead up to even being on the island when they're on the mainland and it's clear that dinosaurs have gotten to the mainland. Um, again, spoiler alert, not really, it's in the first chapter. Uh, <laughs> um, but every like important character you happen upon is like, oh, turns out he was american like there's no one who's intelligent or has anything to offer who isn't doesn't happen to be a white american living in costa rica um it's just like all over the place there's no one else uh to offer anything do you think there were people living on the island before hammond like leased it and turned it into jurassic park and do you think those people are still on the island like in a house (laughs) Like there's just there's like one family that wouldn't like give up their place to eminent yeah. domain, so through the government, and there's like Hold one out. cranky guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> and he's like whole place is surrounded by raptors, but he just like keeps watching television. It's like yeah. why the power go out? Go flip the circuit breakers. Um, <laughs> this is a Unix system. 
<laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, it was it was a really it was it was a truly wonderful experience to see the movie in the theater, though. And I think I think Carrie's talked a lot about the awe, the sort of childlike awe of. of Encountering well as as a child, I guess it has to be childlike by definition, right? Like because you're yes. a child, you see it. But uh, but I feel like some of it was revisited when we were watching it. Although there were other people in the theater who weren't as awed by it as we were. I think um, no, I think we were the, we were the only ones who were applauding, yeah. <laughs> or maybe I specifically was the only one applauding. Yeah, yeah, the T Rex. Yeah. I mean, Matt and Mark, you guys you guys saw Jurassic Park back in the day, right? Back you in the day, yeah, it's been a, a long, long time. I mean, do you have a memory? I mean, this this was a movie that at one point was the highest grossing film in history, right? This was like a huge deal. Yeah, I think until Titanic. Yeah, pretty much. So, I mean, like, did this have a large cultural impact on you? Did it affect your lives? The interesting thing for me that, that comes to mind is um, I distinctly remember, like, my dinosaur phase as a young child, which had already passed by the time that uh, Jurassic Park, both the book and the movie, had come out. And um, But this, oddly enough, I don't, like remember going to the movie and being like oh i am recapturing that childlike joy of um of, of uh, an interest in, in in dinosaurs that i had you know maybe like what five years prior to that um i i what do i remember from it i i mostly remember i, I think the, the effects the special effects probably what the, what had um had, had made the most impact upon me and uh, maybe that's something interesting to talk about in terms of the legacy of this movie i think um uh, Jurassic Park is sometimes held up uh, not as like you know this this great movie from the early '90s, but as an example of this you know downward spiral of uh, event movies relying heavily on special effects at the expense of story and character. I think it was a game changer. It was the first time CGI was used the way that it was. Like up until that point, when CGI characters uh, were created, they typically could only create things that were sort of liquidy in texture, like in T2. Right, in T1000. Um, and, and so it was used in this brand new way. And it's used sparingly. There's only 15 minutes of dinosaur footage in the whole movie. Um, wow. Yeah, it's like an hour and 27. I just looked this up. And, I didn't and, have this memorized. And that includes... <laughs> That includes uh, CG and practical and effect dinosaurs, yeah. Now, and I think it, when people saw what was possible, it was the turning point where you then saw this flood of CGI and being used more exclusively. Like, if Jurassic Park was made today, they would never build puppets the way they did. And that's a shame, because the puppets look amazing. Like, I feel like there's no um, trade-off of having something that's physically there, and now it's just so much cheaper to to just create whatever and it doesn't matter how bad it looks with CG guy. It is kind of weird that that's like, you know, puppeteers have a prohibitively high salary. We can't pay puppeteers. We have to hire software engineers, right? Like, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's also sort of a risk thing. And well, also it's, a also, thing. It's, it's, it's also how much you can do with how, like how the, a puppeteer can work forever to create one puppet for one shot and how m- many CGI shots can be created in that same amount of time. Yeah, that's a good point. Also, Side presumably, note, I just, a pup- presumably a puppeteer is unionized, whereas a CGI artist can be offshore and decidedly not unionized. It's possible. I mean, you know, maybe there's a least, maybe they have an island that's full of uh, dinosaur animators that have been injected mm-hmm. with, with mosquito blood. <laughs> That's been sealed well, in amber. You, yeah. should read, you should watch the, in the making of, um, which you can find on YouTube or on like the, um, 
33 minute mark, there's just this whole passage of computer animators running around a room doing a movement class, pretending to be dinosaurs and like leaping over logs so they would just understand the movement. And it is just a glory to behold. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're yeah, they're nerds there. There's a lot of like old footage of of Disney animators like studying dogs and kind of doing you know, kind of miming dog stuff for Lady and the Tramp or cats for the Aristocats and, and, and stuff like that. So, like, getting animators uh, to do that is, you know, sort of part of the, I mean, part of the sort of weird, weird, uh, I don't know, one of the, the, the weird things about the, about the practice. Um, but, but, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's interesting. You can, you can only, I mean, a puppet, I don't know, you can, like, do that, that, camera zooming around thing with CGI models that everyone likes now so much, you know, like every establishing shot in the Lord of the Rings where the camera zooms in in a 360 degree pan. I mean, right. Like if Jurassic yeah. Park were made today, you would see a, like, a, I don't know, a Crazy so, sweep over yeah, the island, yeah, like moving shot, actually, uh, like, but that goes between the dinosaur's legs and like flicks <laughs> off its yeah. tail. Is it, yeah. you know, <laughs> Well, there's some beautiful camera, and there's some beautiful camera work um, just in the beginning of Jurassic Park. There, there's this shot very early on where the can they're in the cave mining amber, and the camera sort of floats around and then comes in tight all the way in to zoom in on the um, mosquito in there. And and watching it, I was totally aware that it was a physical thing. I was seeing like there's a different quality when you have those crazy camera effects with CGI. But also there's a shot where the helicopter is landing, and I noticed that the camera in panning to try and track it like jerks around and it was very jarring and it could have also been um, heightened because of the 3d after effects but um but like you would never see that now because it would just be done with computers yeah 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 definitely i think and i think one of the other cool things about jurassic park and the way it's shot is the lighting is really cool mm-hmm. right uh and i think that and it's it's very organic and um it's uh Textured, I, th- I think like like so the scene with the T Rex, the famous scene with the T Rex that everybody knows. Um, there's more flashlights in that scene than there is T Rex, right? Mm, like so right, much right, of what right. happens in that movie is like beams of flashlights that are flying around, or like bursts of flares and lights that are hitting people's faces. And I mean, mm. I, I remembered when we were watching it. There's a very small plot element that's explained uh, that sort of dropped in that when all the systems go out – oh, no, before all the systems go out, when they're, uh, when they're driving the cars around in the electric tour, right? They're on this tour that's set up by the computers that – there's no actual driver. It's all automatic. And uh, I think Samuel L. Jackson mentions, oh, the, the lights on the cars are on, and the lights in the car shouldn't be on because they, they're connecting directly to the batteries rather than to the electrical grid. Um, and this is – this doesn't really serve to do much, right? This little detail, it, it's, it's like foreboding. It's like, oh no, like something might, bad might happen because we don't have everything under control. And there's a lot of those moments in the movie. But one of the funny things is that it justifies why so much of that scene is shot with car lights going through rain, mm-hmm. which was probably what Spielberg likes about the scene in the first place. Right? Like the thing that, that they want to do with that scene is they want to have this, this shot in the rain with the beams of light and the children in the darkness and this thing that's out there and the beams yeah. of light sort of searching for it. Uh, and it's all built around this sort of indirect observation and just even the image of the, of the water that's like, that's like rippling, right? It's all about kind of like detection and about like, um, things bouncing off of things and water. I don't know. There's, there's all this cool stuff happening in that scene filmically and symbolically and, and technique wise, um, that has nothing to do with just 
pointing uh, pointing a Pentium three at a dinosaur. But it's filmmaking. What's up? Speaking of just computers, like I don't know anything about supercomputers, but in the book, they just keep referring to the, like how they bought all these cray something something. Oh yeah, computers. yeah, totally. Cray are the like, super. Oh, yeah, it is cray. <laughs> it is cray. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> It's funny because uh, in in the book they're much more explicit about how everything is automated uh, because they're trying to cut costs because they want to make the most money they can, which is kind of ridiculous because if you had an island full of dinosaurs, I don't think you're going to have to worry that much about cutting, trimming the fat of like not having somebody that you can pay minimum wage to drive your truck around. Um, <laughs> I would love to have the perspective of somebody who is in charge of logistics for a large park uh, or zoo watch the movie or the book and just point out how destined to fail it would have been, even if everything went exactly how they planned. Right, like oh, yeah. uh, Jurassic Park it's was contemporaneous with... It was contemporaneous with NAFTA. So, right, all the all the American, you know, zoo guide jobs were getting outsourced to South America, right, where they would do it for pennies on the dollar, right? Like cheap labor in in emerging economies is not is not really the con, you know the foremost concern, right? Hey, so while we're talking, uh, starting to dwell on the like logistical and financial aspects of running Jurassic Park, um, <laughs> uh, what, what about like was there an insurance policy? That the that the park had to take out, like what was the plan for that? I mean, they, they mention it. They mention it early on in the movie. And Carrie, I don't know if they talk about it in the book, but I remember they well, talked about it in the movie. What? Yep. So the lawyer in the movie, the lawyers like, oh, the investors are nervous. Um, I they, I don't know if they actually specifically talk about insurance. I feel like they didn't tell anyone what they were doing. So I don't know how you'd get insurance, but even like they're they're like. Within the year, planning to roll out the park, and they have people designing their advertising, and they haven't even told them what's on the park. Which um, is weird because of the name of the park in the picture. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> the, the lawyer in the book, I remember when we saw it, Pete, you had mentioned it, it's silly that the lawyer is then all greedy and excited about how much money the park is going to make. Um, because you're saying he wouldn't have seen any of that money. But in, in the book, um, the law firm has a 5% stake in the park, and that's why they're concerned. Which um, is terrible that your lawyer who's measuring your legal risks has a financial stake. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The oversight yeah. is terrible. Oh, they should have called a conflict of interest park instead of yeah. like give in. He doesn't give in immediate. He he like still has concerns, and he want like he, he's excited that they could make money, but he's still all and he lives all the way throughout. He doesn't get eaten off a toilet, which is you know just a pointing because that's a highlight. <laughs> um, he lives all the way through and and never stops wanting to shut the park down. Yeah. So the precipitating event in the movie is that there's a workplace accident where the only Costa Rican character in the film is eaten by a dinosaur, uh-huh. right? <laughs> um, and the, we are informed that the family of this man is suing the park, or whatever ent- legal entity represents the park, for $20 million. And the lawyer has been sent by the investors, presumably they are some sort of form of board of directors for the organization, to conduct an inspection to see if the park is ready to launch. Uh, and I, I thought that the lawyer mentioned at one point that their insurance costs were going to go up because of the lawsuit. Yeah. And that, that means that they probably have insurance on their more mundane operations, right? Like they have a relationship with the Amber Mine, they have transportation, like they probably have other things that they insure other than the dinosaurs. Um, I mean, maybe oh. there's dinosaur insurance, you know? Like, 
Uh, they're insured against like somebody like slipping on what uh, steps leading up to the gift shop, as opposed to uh, being consumed. Exactly, because yeah, those are those are fat tail risks, as it were. <laughs> That's a fat a brontosaurus is a fat tail risk. Uh, but yeah, but yeah. So uh, so, but there's no oversight, right? Like the more uh, a more sophisticated organization would have had not just the the lawyer who represents a law firm who owns part of the company, uh, but it would have you know somebody who's in charge of measuring the insurance. You have an actuary. Right, like I was even working on an article for this where I could go into this in more detail, but it's like there are no actuaries at Jurassic Park. You know what an actuary does for a living? Because it would be really useful in Jurassic Park. An actuary looks at things that could kill people and determines how likely it is that they will die. That is yeah, an actuary's job. They're missing a lot of things at Jurassic Park, like for instance, a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. Do they actually have yeah, a nurse? There's no medical staff. <laughs> Even in the book, like in the movie, they kind of try to play it off like, oh, they sent everybody off the island because of the storm. In the book, there's much more. They're like, there's a whole resort that you're meant to stay there. Um, and even in that case, there's, like, no medical staff. What if someone at Jurassic Park had diabetes? Yeah. Right? Like, what would you do? You uh, still need someone. Your fancy computer system isn't going to fix that. <laughs> yeah, especially if your, your clientele is, like, the oh, super... Oh, that shit is prey. <laughs> indeed, indeed, definitely. So there's a lot of managerial mistakes and financial mistakes and, and all sorts of risk management mistakes in the way that the park is operated. That the fact that they have well like you know what it made me think of um do you guys remember oh gosh when when was this there was a there was an issue with uh somebody being in a lot of debt in the government um at any rate um one of the sort of scenarios that sometimes comes up when people talk about hr in large companies is like well what do you do if you have like somebody who works for you who has like a large gambling debt Right. And like that's a problem because they could pretend they become a risk to like embezzle money from your company. Right. It's, right. You have to keep tabs on them. Um, oh, I remember this was in reference to General Petraeus. Right. Like, uh, <laughs> so you remember General Petraeus was stooping his biographer. Right. Yes. Uh, and so there was the concern that General Petraeus's relationship with his biographer was because he was the head of the scene. That was a problem that Anne Frank did not have. This <laughs> is true. This is true. <laughs> Uh, no, actually, if you read her diary, yeah, no, it's not to say there's some racy, there's some racy bits in it. Um, some racy bits, but there's a question that, as the head of the CIA, is is a threat to national security. That General Petraeus, not that he's stripping his biographer and might do favors for her, but that somebody might find out about it and blackmail him, right, right, and that that prevents a security risk to the United States. And he's like, no, it doesn't. Whatever. Uh, but uh, but you now this I'll ask you about the book, Carrie, because in the movie it's strongly implied that Dennis Nedry, the Wayne Wayne Knight Newman Newman. Mm-hmm. Uh, has some sort of financial problem that uh, he has some sort of like he's made some sort of mistake that's caused him to lose a lot of money and he complains a lot to his boss about the fact that he's not getting paid enough to do his work and he can barely get by and the boss keeps telling him like it's not my fault that you made these bad choices right and so um, in in an actual corporation they'd probably if they heard about something like that like there'd be a little talk with HR probably about being like hey like this guy who's in charge of all of our securities is being held by the mafia like what are we going to do about this is that reference more in the book or dealt with at all or is that something that's tagged on it isn't it's more um like engine the company that hammond owns um they really do try to like cut corners with everything and they hire him to do a job and he does the job and then goes away and then all this 
all these new problems arise and they basically threaten to sue him if he doesn't do more work to finish it, even oh. though it wasn't part of his original contract. Um, so he's got a chip on his shoulder about that. Um, but yeah, he, I don't know. There's one point where he t- talks about the bribe money he's getting and how much, how it would be like 10 years salary in one minute. So he's making $150,000 a year in 1993. So if he does have financial problems, <laughs> <laughs> he's, the mafia he's, surely must be involved somehow. And that is indeed Cray. If he's having- that is Cray. <laughs> I, love, I love hearing about the Cray computers. You know what I always associate the Cray supercomputers with is uh, Donkey Kong Country. You guys remember Donkey Kong Country for Super Nintendo? Because that was before they could do the the real in-engine 3D rendering. And I believe that they used, uh, was it Silicon Graphics? Uh, it might have been Cray Supercomputers. This, might, this is probably just me buying into Nintendo Power propaganda. <laughs> but that, like, all of the 3D images in Donkey Kong Country were pre-rendered and then, like, plugged into the, the the cartridge as sprites right like right, they right, were right. Uh, but that they were they were made on these advanced supercomputers the same kinds that were used in jurassic park um that's like, what i was thinking yeah about. likely running on unix no doubt <laughs> i know yeah. i, was I waiting know for, this i know i was waiting i was waiting for the opening to talk about unix i know this yeah. do you know right. unix mark i don't not know unix <laughs> <laughs> matt matt rather is a legitimate unix user you know he knows his command line his sudos and whatnot <laughs> <laughs> Does it so? Wait, so Matt, let me ask you as a Unix as a as a Unix familiar IT professional, <laughs> uh-huh. at least moonlighting wise, um, the interface that uh, that what's the little girl's name, Carrie? Lex. Lex. Okay, <laughs> Lex encounters one of the 3D. world's experts on <laughs> Jurassic Park. She knows all of the characters' names. <laughs> she has read awesome. the book, which I have not done since I was twelve. Nobody reads anymore. She's the only person who's doing this, people. This is really important. I read the book uh, in like a string of Michael Crichton books. I went on a Michael Crichton kick uh, oh, when I was 11, which is about the intellectual level you want to be at for a Michael Crichton yeah. kick. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was like, it was that, and it was Outbreak, and it was... Oh, and- yeah. Did you read Congo? Dramatist. Yeah. No, Congo, no, wait, wait. Congo may have come out later than my, than my Michael Crichton kick. Oh, then my Michael Crichton kick was after your Michael Crichton kick because yeah. Congo featured prominently in my Michael Crichton kick. Oh, it was it. funny rereading as an adult and then also reading on an e-reader and being able to just immediately check the validity of the science he throws up <laughs> as like as something that makes sense or like something he'll reference as a historical event. And I'm like looking it up and the only hit is on like a Jurassic park wiki. And that's like, this is a fictional incident. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Should, well, right out. <laughs> should we address the mathematics in Jurassic park? I don't think any of us are qualified to do it, but let's try anyway. Hold on. The mathematics are more prominent in the movie than the, this actually gets at something that I was that I that I wanted to talk about, which is this: What is the fear that's being sort of expressed metaphorically, right, in Jurassic Park? When we talk about creature movies, we're like a lot of the time we're talking about um, some kind of cultural anxiety, larger cultural anxiety being worked out in the form of the movie. Whether it's you know all the creature movies, be creature movies of the fifties, which were about like the effects of radiation, and there was just this anxiety, or the you know the new Spider Man, the Tobey Maguire. Spider-Man was a genetically modified spider and and I I'm not sure that the the 
the anxiety being worked out in the movie is actually like genetic engineering because it wasn't far enough along at that point, you know, certainly not as, as far along as it is now with genetically modified crops in the news and sort of the, the like legal frameworks being unable to, to handle them. And, and, uh, the patent system and like the the intersection between uh, intellectual property and I think there was enough of a hint of it though for there to be the fear of us d- destroying ourselves <laughs> inadvertently. I mean, Ian Malcolm in the book is much more. He's clearly he clearly just exists for Michael Crichton to to say his piece about you know what we could potentially how we could potentially harm ourselves, not the planet, but ourselves. Um, and there's a, something he mentions in the book, which I did not look into to see if it was based on anything real at the time, but about genetically modified trout, that in, that they were modified to be paler so that you could spot them more easily in the stream. Um, and then they were getting less complaints from fishermen and everything because they could catch them more easily and they knew they were there, but that they taste the t- that it like was spongy and didn't taste the same as regular trout. Um, and I mean, that smacks of some kind of reality to me. Um, just I think of like the whole episode of this American life about pig improvement and genetically modified animals and what it does to the meat. Um, so I think enough of it was there. And, and maybe even if you, if there was less concrete stuff then your imagination could run wild even more <laughs> about what was going to be possible and what we could accidentally do. Yeah, I feel like the, uh, there are things that we rely on. They're like part of what Jurassic Park is about is about there are things that we rely on and that we sort of assume to be true, and then there are things that we generally don't rely on or assume to know that and be able to control. And that technology uh, of various sorts, you know, whether it's you know engineering or electronics or or any of these other uh, bio eng- biological technology, uh, allow us to rely upon a larger and larger expanding set of things. And that the anxiety is that, like, by rely, I mean be confident in our control and understanding of these subjects. And the fear is that as we sort of expand the circle outward, the, that inward circle, those things that we were originally able to rely on, will change in a way that we can't rely on them anymore. Right? And that, like, we, you, like, the idea of, like, catching a trout in the stream, right? Like, catching a fish. What's, what's sort of more basic and, and kind of down home than being able to catch a fish? Well, now we can change the fish, uh, such that all of the things about fishing that you didn't used to be able to, to, control are within our grasp, but the core aspect of the fish itself has been somehow jeopardized. And so then this, this thing with Jurassic Park is that, okay, you know, we can expand our control over nature. We can expand our ability to entertain ourselves. We can expand the, the way that we control even like the locks on our doors and all this stuff. But at the, then our security on our own persons is, is gone. Right, like our our own personal like safety is threatened in a very animalistic way that we thought we'd conquered. Like right. we, we then turn out to have natural predators, which is something that we totally didn't. We totally wrote right off as as having, and that's kind of what the horror movie is, in my mind, anyway. Yeah, and that's the direction that I that I wanted to go with it. That I think that it's it's I think that the horror is is really more about automation or really more about kind of like the kind of the the consequences of handing more and more control over to computers to automated systems even more than it is about about the potential consequences of of genetic engineering because mm-hmm. the 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 um the dinosaurs are are a, are a kind of threat but they're they're kind of a non-specific threat they're just a kind of like roary scary 
uh, threat, but like your lock not working, you know, the, the, uh, right. Like not being able to, uh, control the like secure perimeter around yourself. Like that's, um, you know, I don't know. That's a specific threat, right? Like that's something that kind of uh, cuts to the core for me anyway. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't, don't want to specifically hone in on the automobile aspect for a moment, right? Sure. Oh yeah. The, point, whole like, the cars car. can't drive. They can't drive the cars themselves, right? They're right. just like completely sitting there ducks and uh, like sitting ducks, uh, you know, without the automated systems around them. Um, it, 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 it reminds me of two things. One is just the broader American um, obsession with automobiles and the autonomy and independence that they represent. And two, this upcoming um, uh, 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 phenomenon that we're going to have to deal with, which is the self-driving car. Right. right. I was about to say right. no one's no one's raising a stink about Google and the driverless cars, but that's that's I think more an object of horror in 1993 than it is 20 years later, right? I mean, I guess we've given up a lot of our personal control of, of that sort of thing already, and we're comfortable with it. I mean, I, I do think that it is. I think Carrie is right in that, like. They were farther along with genetic engineering and, and biological technology at the time than it seems like they were now in retrospect. But like, but yeah, even that, like all of it, it's all connected. I think that's maybe that's one of the big, in terms of it being science fiction, one of the big connections in Jurassic Park is how Michael Crichton draws the line. He draws a line that encompasses self-driving cars, mm-hmm. advanced computer systems, magnetic locks. You know, synthetic dinosaurs. Like, yeah, these the things thing, are all connected to each other. The thing he hits home over and over again, to the point where it's like, oh, stop hitting me with this sledgehammer, Michael Crichton, um, with Malcolm, is it's like, it's not, it's not the thing you're looking at thinking it's a danger. Like, it isn't the dinosaur. It's this whole system that, that is so complex, and you don't understand how all of it works together, um, and you can't control it. You're not in control. And I think that speaks a lot, too. I mean, so many things that we rely on now, you know, who could make a car? Who could build their own house? Who could who could hunt? Who could, you know, get their food if it wasn't readily available at the store? You know, and if any things outside of our control fall apart, we are basically completely helpless now. Right. This is something, I mean, uh, Ben Adams, another writer on Overthinking It, pointed me to a book about, you know, a guy trying to build a toaster. Um, and like, you know, no, no one can build a toaster, right? Like it takes the entire industrialized world, uh, and the entire developing world in order to, to build a toaster that, that works even remotely well, right? Like you couldn't hack one together in your garage. But anyway, this, this, like the systems are getting, getting too too complex, right? Like, so this is, this is actually, Pete, this is where I wanted to go when you, you started talking about the, the math and why I sort of diverted us down this, down this road, because, um, you know, I don't know, cause, cause, uh, chaos, this has to do with like chaos theory and with sort of what kind of fractal geometries and, and stuff like, stuff like that. Um, but the thing the the, the misunderstanding about chaos theory is that it's not, you know, it's not that things are suddenly going to be random, right? It's, it's that, uh, you can have seemingly random or sort of, uh, uh, very unpredictable behavior um, in a deterministic system that is extremely sensitive to initial conditions and where you actually don't really know all the 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 variables at play right like so that's that's the 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 thing about the math of the movie that is um, 
uh, where it's a uh, what Michael Crichton distorts science ever so slightly to to make a thing. You know, it's not that like the the chaos math right is like not that stuff is going to be random or that you like plug a set of uh, you plug in a set of inputs and hey anything could happen. Boom! It's a dinosaur. Boom! You stepped on a butterfly and suddenly everyone is is speaking in pigeon English. No, it's not. And and I mean like pigeon English, like verb, like the bird, like uh, pigeons speaking. Like, <laughs> but um hip, hip, it, cheerio <laughs> that's an english pigeon yeah sorry <laughs> um, it's actually an american pigeon doing an english pigeon pigeon accent <laughs> <laughs> it's an english pigeon it's a transatlantic gwyneth paltrow pigeon <laughs> <laughs> i'm i'm married to the gold play guy <laughs> <laughs> but Matt, it's, it's just sort of here's and as you're saying this, Matt. Um, here's what I when you're talking about the Google car, right? Here's the thing that 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 strikes me as you're saying all this stuff. Because what's the biggest difference in how we interact with technology now versus how we interacted with 1993? And I would argue that the biggest differences are design differences, right? It's that people understood back in 1993 think of the way that the technology in jurassic park is accessed you have a back room that has a really really complex computer system and only the little child knows how to use it <laughs> uh, and every, <laughs> everyone's like frenetically smoking on cigarettes right and they're trying to fix it now that's how an actual computer system would work today as well right there would be a back room and there would be like the it team desperately trying to keep it working honestly between- it would be like it would be like one mac mini sitting in a closet somewhere. <laughs> that's true <laughs> you know? well, well managing jurassic park would be a much easier and he's like, who networks eight machines? It's like, well, you know, gosh. Um, <laughs> I actually but, uh, have more computers than that in my house right now. Yeah. Oh my God. In, the, in the book, there's all this tension in the, when things first start going wrong, but they can't call the mainland because there's a modem on the line. <laughs> 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 like the describing, like picking up the phone and hearing the hissing and being like, what is that? Oh, it's yeah. so wonderful. I actually, I, I, have, I have eight computers uh, with with more computing power than the Cray supercomputers in Jurassic Park sitting on my desk right now. <laughs> right. That that S is Cray. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but what I was, I was saying is that, like, they figured out that if they want people to be, they being everybody, has figured out that if you want people to interact with these tremendously complex systems in a way that is comfortable, and you want them to do it comfortably because then they will buy it, Right, you, you, the thing that you think is comfortable is something you will invite into your own life, and you will give part of your like permission into your life to that you would not give to something that you're uncomfortable with, right? And the, the trick is how do we elegantly design these system interfaces and the way these systems interact with people such that it doesn't scare and alarm them? And I think the one thing that chaos theory. Uh, despite it being not a particularly great descriptor of the events of Jurassic Park, has in common with the machines in Jurassic Park is that it's a system that, as you perceive it, it creates anxiety by its incompatibility with human interface. Sure. Right? Like, just like our inability to sort of interface with large, large uh, uh, extents of time or big exp- or bigger big or small um, extents of space like we have sort of difficulty as lo- as systems of ourselves uh, comprehending or dealing with um, these things that are much larger than ourselves, much smaller than ourselves, much more complex than ourselves, where ideas of control don't happen in a way that we're comfortable with. This creates anxiety for us. We don't right. want to invite that into our home. It's, it's not by um, accident, in other words, that the Jonathan Colton song about the Mandelbrot set begins, you know, pathological monsters cried the terrified mathematicians. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so what Google does, of course, when they say don't be evil, is also like, you know, don't be existentially horrifying. <laughs> right? It's like, <laughs> it's like creating an interface that people are comfortable with. And that isn't in like, and I think it's also fitting in Jurassic Park that Ian Malcolm, the character who represents all of this, is, I mean, I don't know if he's like this in the book, but in the movie, he's, well, he's Jeff Goldblum, which is yes. spectacular. <laughs> but uh, but he's, a, he's a rock star, yeah, right? I he's do. somebody who just is like, he just doesn't care, right? He's, he's all sexy he and he, shirt open and all this other that way in the book and he, he's from austin texas which i love <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah and he's like he's like <laughs> he part of why he's able to deal with and comprehend the craziness and is that he has kind of a punk rock sensibility about it he's he's a cult he represents he's connected to cultural uh expressions of this anxiety and he connects them to sort of empirical and mathematical expressions of this anxiety right or places in that empirical and mathematical scheme where this anxiety is also expressed but when Um, you know like the the interesting thing to me is that like in in our time today and like in the contemporary moment when we are sort of connected and everything is connected to everything like my toaster is on the internet right like in this like you know uh interdependent system the the thing that is most interesting about it is human behavior in in this system and not like some emergent property of of the computers right like 4chan is a lot more interesting to me uh the the kind of like emergent behaviors of the of the humans is a lot more interesting than, I don't know, anything that happens at the level, anything that happens at the level of the machines. I mean, of course, the machines may just not be talking to me. I mean, they may be biding their time. But, uh, I, you know, I think that the, yeah. the, like, the changes in the, changes in the discourse um, that this sort of friendlier, uh, not as existentially horrifying technology enables is... Um, you know, I don't know, is the most interesting thing apart, uh, interesting thing yeah. about it, at I least mean, to me. You know what this stuff is, is that this phenomenon, it, this is Adam Smith's invisible hand, is what it is. Uh, and the way that he, when he expresses it, and I don't mean in terms of it being a free market that makes economics all better all the time. I mean, when Adam Smith is talking about the invisible hand, you know, he's talking about uh, the, sort of un, the sort of unfathomable despair, the unfathomable uh, diversity of self-interest. Right, and this idea that, that when you put anything out there, every individual person who comes in contact with it is going to have something that they are going to want to do with it, right? And that, that they are going to want to enrich themselves from it, and, and that um, the, the, the sort of uh, wisdom or energy or utility or power or all these other aspects that go into that function, um, they are profound, they are more profound than uh, any government or business's ability to control the economy themselves. Uh, and, and that that is this sort of emergent invisible hand that is acting on economies and creating wealth. And I think that, that um, more and it gets too associated with just the idea of whether or not we should regulate trade routes. Th- this, this invisible hand, I think, is also present in consumer product design and in human behavior study, right? It's that, like... Um, the, what do we? What do people actually do that we can't really change? What do people actually do that they don't even really know that they do, um, either in the aggregate or individually? And it's this, just this powerful force that has this great deal of complexity, but seems when it when it is observable to act with a certainty that confounds us, and to act with a sure-handedness that confounds us, right? Like, yeah, like you know. People might, you might not know why a person picks one particular web browser over another, but when they all do, you sure know, 
right? When everybody switches from, you know, Friendster to MySpace to Facebook, you know, it, it's not entirely clear what. We can all reminisce about what feature it was that did it or why they did it or what mistakes they made. And, and in retrospect, there's a certain amount of wisdom, but when it happens, it happens. Like the invisible hand acts, right? And it, and it moves things. Uh, and, and, and now, I mean, that's one of the ways in which capitalism shapes the way that technology uh, exists is that, you know, the, the, the dog wags the tail, the tail wags the dog. Something's wagging something else. When you make a consumer product, you have to care about how people use it, right? If you're making a product to sell to people, the thing that you can't change about how they choose to use it, that is a fact about how you will be designing that product. No, Whereas no, no, if you Pete, were it's a, it is a back massager. It's a massager <laughs> for your back. Come on. CVS? I'm not convinced by the picture on that box. <laughs> there is an attractive, unclothed woman holding that massager to her, like, shoulder blade, you know? That Look. massager has an interesting shape, is all I'm saying. I'm saying that the Grab shake that weight uses me. dynamic vibration to build. <laughs> but, yeah, I, that's a great example. Is <laughs> yeah? Is that the invisible? What is the invisible hand doing after hours? We sure know, don't we? <laughs> oh, but you know what? We are so preoccupied with whether or not it could, we didn't stop to think whether it should. <laughs> By that shake weight. <laughs> So anyway, I uh, I want to get into like I don't know after this it's time to wrap up but I like I want to get into a discussion about behavioral economics and about sort of ways in which people do not act in accordance with their economic self interest but that your your account of the invisible hand seems to seems to uh, take that into consideration that is to say it's not the force of everyone acting to get in 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 an economically rational way it's the the force of everyone just acting you know in accordance with their nature um that that sort of creates the that 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 is when observed the invisible hand right i mean it's an, it's an aggressive reading of smith but yeah it's like it's not like everyone acting towards an end it's everyone acting right like that's why the hand is invisible if we knew what everyone was doing then the hand would be visible but it's not it's invisible so yeah so it's like maybe they're they might not be acting towards what we think their best interest is they may not be acting in a rational manner um but yeah but there is yeah exactly yes the answer pizza that's not rational pizza no <laughs> i just ordered one that's not rational and if you're listening to this podcast on monday morning you'd think that carrie's ordering a pizza at 8 a.m on a monday which is doubly it's irrational made me do it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh you can just feed it to the raptors just feed it to the raptors all right uh this has been Episode 250 of the Overthinking of <laughs> Oh, you don't want background music while you talk? <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I feel like this is, a, this is an august moment. I didn't even know what to do about it. We actually didn't even talk about this in, in our planning for this episode, that this is episode uh, 250. Uh, you know, I don't know. There's something fitting about it that we've gone back to... Uh, we've gone back to what, uh, you know, a 20 year old, uh, piece of pop culture, right? Like that gives a sense of moment. Uh, the fact that things are old, right. Are, is, <laughs> is one of the, uh, one of the Matt. things that you can do to import a sense of, Matt. of kind of importance. We, we brought in. it back. 
I, I think what you're trying to say is that we talked about dinosaurs because we are dinosaurs. Hey, yo. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> le dinosaur, c'est moi. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know. Uh, gents, um, more to the, the overthinking of readers. I mean, ha- have you learned anything in the course of 250 podcasts other than we have a... Uh, uh, and, and uncanny ability to go on. <laughs> it's that life finds a way. Man. <laughs> Podcast podcasts find a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, back when we started the overthinking at podcast, it was before the time when like everybody and their brother had a podcast. That's correct. And look at how we converted that early adoption into a huge market advantage. <laughs> we, no, are we, were... li- we literally scrape the bottom of the top 135 podcasts in the iTunes store uh, yeah. uh, on rare occasions. <laughs> but no, I mean, I feel like we've learned a lot of stuff. I think that... Um, you learn about what makes for a, you know, what, what does it, how does it feel? I feel like a lot of what you learn and you podcast for four years straight is just the, the emotional rhythm of groups of people talking, you know, when to try to, and we still tromp all over each other all the time, but it's like when to, how to pass focus, like when to talk, when to shut up, um, what ideas people are talking about, what ideas they aren't talking about, you know, like, um, following the flow. Uh, I mean, I feel like, it's, you think less about what you need to do. I think one of the big things we learned is that a group of four or five is probably the best size for one of these things. Rather than like eight, like on yeah, some eight. of the early ones. <laughs> oh, goodness. That's always so tough. And it's like you say one thing and then you're sitting there and you're typing in the back channel. Like, I want to say something. I want to say something. Um, but, yeah, it gets tough. The other thing is we owe, we owe a lot of this to Skype, right? Yeah. And Skype is the Skype is an amazing is an amazing technology wrapped in just the crappiest interface that you can <laughs> that you can possibly imagine. And everything about Skype is terrible except for the core technology. And like those guys who who made Kazaa had some incredible insight. Uh, speaking of mathematics and computers and knowing Unix, right? Like had some like incredible insight about the transfer of information from one place to another that um, that they used in Kazaa and they used in Skype and they used in their short-lived uh, uh, kind of ahead of its time video business called Juiced, J-O-O-S-T. You remember that one? Oh, um, yeah, geez. Uh, where you had to download a special client for it and it used that same sort of peer-to-peer technology that Skype uses today. Like uh, that, uh, it is an incredible, it is an incredible uh, underlying technology. And they hopefully they'll send us a check soon for our excellent endorsement. <laughs> or, at least, also, or at least make it easier to just do a group audio call instead of video call. Because like present the video call thing as a default option when you got two contacts selected. You're right, because you're trying, trying to, to nickel and dime you with trying the thing to, uh, for the extra Exactly. Package. Upsell oh, me to Skype easy. Premium. I don't want Skype Premium. Guy, guys, I think off. we're far enough <laughs> off topic that we should probably bring this to a close. All right. <laughs> I'm Harvey Feierstein for Skype. 
And one of the other good things that I've learned over the last four years is it's great to have guests, and I like having guests on the podcast. It's nice. I now know why so many successful podcasts have guests all the time because it mixes it up. It gives you something new, fresh perspective. It is very nice. So thank nice. you, and Carrie, so, for coming on the podcast. Yeah, Carrie, very grateful me. to have you here. So uh, Carrie Durzik can be found at uh, at Cleva Girl C L E V A A H G I R L on Twitter, and getting uh, about the Jurassic <laughs> yeah, no, I just went to your thing and your avatar is a uh is a, a dinosaur, right? It's a raptor. Yeah. With a bow. With a bow. <laughs> She's so cute. And clever. <laughs> and um and the uh, uh, the iPad magazine to which she contributes some in, uh, some illustrations is called Paperweight. You can search for that uh, on the App Store on the iPad and and get there and be uh, amazed by her amazing illustrations. Um, <laughs> there is actually a dinosaur esque uh, illustration in the first issue, which is a complete coincidence because I I was asked to illustrate something that I didn't write. So <laughs> anyone who goes to see that. Me like this girl has a dinosaur problem. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so if you want to join, if you want to open the door and get on the floor, you can email <laughs> podcast at overthinking it dot com. Call or text two zero three two eight five six four zero one. It's two zero three two eight five six four zero one. Send some happy birthday wishes. We'll play them on the podcast next time. Uh, and uh, join the conversation on the show notes for this episode about Jurassic Park 3D, about CGI, uh, about your anxieties about um, about genetic engineering or nanotechnology or chaos theory or Unix. Uh, Unix is very anxiety provoking when you are unfamiliar with it. I know from experience. Um, so uh, for this episode, that's a raptor. <laughs> <laughs> you can uh, listen to us next week until then visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve hold on to your butts 